Accidents are an unavoidable fact of life. Or are they? In this podcast, we discuss current events through one personal injury lawyer's perspective. In each episode, we'll focus on one event and attempt to answer the oftentimes not-so-simple question, who's to blame? I'm your host, Jonathan Ratchik. This podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Kramer and Levy and Ratchik PLLC and is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you think you might have a lawsuit, you should contact an attorney. On October 21st, acclaimed cinematographer, 42-year-old Helena Hutchins, was fatally shot by Hollywood actor Alec Baldwin on the set of Rust, a western that was being filmed in New Mexico. Just prior to the shooting, the film's assistant director, Dave Halls, grabbed the gun from among three that the film's armorer had set up on a nearby tray. After yelling cold gun, film jargon, which is supposed to mean that the gun did not contain any live ammunition, Mr. Halls handed the gun to Mr. Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin was rehearsing a scene which involved cross-drawing and pointing the gun towards the camera lens when it suddenly went off. The bullet struck Miss Hutchins in the chest before lodging in the shoulder of the film's director, who was standing next to her. Following the incident, Miss Hutchins was rushed by helicopter to the University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque, where doctors were unable to save her. She survived by her husband and nine-year-old son. In this episode of The Blame Game, we try to answer the question of, who's to blame for this tragic and admittedly accidental death? Who, if anyone, is legally responsible for what happened to Miss Hutchins? The armorer? The assistant director? Mr. Baldwin himself? And to help us answer these questions, we turn to attorney Danny Savalos. In addition to having his own criminal defense practice, Mr. Savalos is of counsel to the law firm of Edelman & Edelman in New York, where his focus is on cases involving wrongful conviction. Mr. Savalos also serves as a legal analyst and online columnist for MSNBC and NBC News. Danny, welcome to The Blame Game. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been looking forward to getting a, an invite, and I finally got it. Thanks. Well, I've been, in, I've been looking forward to extending an invite, and it's always a, uh, an honor to have a celebrity on the show. So, <laughs> Well, I look forward to when you actually have a celebrity on the show, Jonathan. <laughs> so, Danny, what are your thoughts about uh, what happened on the set of Rust? You know, it's been, in the, uh, it's been on the news pretty nonstop since it happened. It's really, uh, you know, just a terrible thing that happened over there. This, is, uh, this Rust situation, it's not even a lawsuit yet, but it surely will be, is the perfect storm uh, of media stories because you have celebrity, uh, you have uh, potential crimes, you have uh, all kinds of uh, blame game going on already, and you have a really tragic, tragic uh, accident that gets people talking about a really politically hot topic, which is firearms and firearm safety. From a personal injury uh, civil liability standpoint, it is a bonanza of discussion for folks like us because, you know, even as the news first emerged, Dave, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, I believe it was a Friday. By Monday, I had written a column that I wish I had had an extra thousand words for because so much news came out over the weekend. It was, uh, it was remarkable. And as stories emerged, you know, there were, it, it, generally we found out more and more and it got curiouser and curiouser. So from a liability standpoint, there are a lot of deep pockets here a lot of potential liability, and as past cases have indicated, including the Brandon Lee case, for example, from about three decades ago, sometimes responsibility is spread out among a lot of different people, uh, and they all have some responsibility for this 
this kind of tragedy. It's very rare in civil litigation that you have one party or one defendant who's going to hold uh, all the liability, so to speak. You know, it can be it can be divided up between two, three, maybe even four different parties, especially in a case like this where you have not just the person, you know, not just the actor who fired the shot, uh, which took uh, this woman's life, but you know, the armor who was supposed to inspect the gun, the assistant director who was who handed the firearm, you know, you know to Alec Baldwin, or perhaps the production company who's overseeing the you know the safety of the set in general. So there are a lot of different um, a lot of different potential culpable parties, so to speak. Yes, and you know, you actually uh, you bring up a good topic. This has been a teachable moment for everyone about what exactly goes on on a film set, and it just so happens that we have a, a film set injury case here at Edelman and Edelman, which is a firm I'm of counsel at. And it's interesting because I've learned through our own case a lot about the hierarchy on a film set. And what you learn is that the first assistant director is sort of the guy or, or gal in charge of safety generally. But then you have a specific person like an armorer who's in charge of firearms. And then you might have a stunt coordinator who has responsibility for stunts. So you have this overlapping safety that uh, everyone is supposed to be double checking and having redundant systems. And again, for that reason, you have all different circles of liability that potentially attach here. And so with the first assistant director, is he uh, primarily responsible? Maybe, but so too is the armorer. So you have a lot of different potential defendants here. Here's the thing where I think it gets strange is that at least when the story first emerged, the thing that occurred to me is that a film set may be the one place in America, the only place in America where we are willing to say, hey, when a person picks up a gun, an actor specifically, he or she doesn't necessarily have to think it is a deadly weapon. I don't think there's anywhere else in America where we don't automatically say, hey, if you pick up a gun, not only should you assume it's loaded, but you should absolutely assume it's a real gun and it's deadly. Now, I say that with an asterisk because there are some criminal defense cases where uh, a defendant claims, I didn't know the gun was loaded. They have varying degrees of success with that defense. However, I don't think any jury in the world would buy the, I didn't know guns were dangerous defense. Correct. Uh, except arguably, possibly, uh, an Alec Baldwin or an actor who was handed a gun and told that it is a cold gun. But you, know, you and I were talking briefly, and you bring up a very good point. Even if you're told it's a cold gun, if it is something... Don't you even have some residual duty? I know right. it's cold. I know it's not supposed to be loaded. Don't Shouldn't you still look in the chamber to make sure that the rounds are not live rounds. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think about that. I am not a, a gun owner, but I have a friend who is a firearms instructor in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and he's taken me out for his instruction. You know, very serious, no joking around, called me, you know, by my last name. We were not buddies when we were on the shooting range. He put me through the training, and the training involved orange rubber plastic guns that were clearly not real guns. But I really believe, you know, and the thing that scared me about shooting firearms is that, you know, as an instructor, here's my friend. I know in my heart he is fully ready that if I do something stupid or even murderous, he'll shoot me dead right there because, oh. you know, he's, he's got to keep everybody safe. And I know that had I, I, I didn't dare goof around with an orange rubber gun. Jonathan, I mean, you couldn't get, this is like a kid's toy gun, uh, yeah. but, you know, we were practicing things like where to point it. I know that if I had started pointing that orange plastic gun at people, that would have been a big no-no, even though I knew 
that it was not a gun. Now, you take your example. And that's something that I've wondered about Alec Baldwin's defense in this case, which is that I didn't know it was loaded. I understand you didn't know it was loaded. Let's assume that you had no reasonable expectation that it's loaded. But you pointed it at someone. And one of the f- cardinal rules of gun safety on the range, anywhere, never point a gun at someone else. Because there's always a risk that it's loaded with live ammunition. And if he had never pointed this gun at Miss Hutchins, this would have never happened. Right. The first rule of gun safety, they say, is never point a weapon, a gun at anything you don't want to destroy. And they, you know, that it has varying different phrasings depending on who you ask. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if you were to ask a, a gun expert, they'd say whether you're handling the orange rubber gun or a cold gun or a real gun, you don't point anything like that anywhere at anybody ever, 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 ever. And I know that sounds weird. In a way, that sounds weird to me because I grew up like you probably did, you know, as a little kid back when they had toy guns that looked like real toy guns. The idea that when we were kids, we ran around with toy guns, you know, I think is still etched in my brain. But, you know, I have to realize that when it comes to gun safety and and in modern times, you don't see kids running around with guns that look as real as the ones we ran around with when we were 9, 10, 11. I'm not even sure if that's a thing with kids anymore. Yeah, you're right. Cops and robbers just doesn't seem to be a thing so much anymore. They're mostly playing cops and robbers online. I think you are right in, in thinking downrange, there may be some liability for Alec Baldwin for pointing anything that looked like a gun, anything shaped like an L at somebody in any capacity, whether or not he's practicing a draw, anything like that. And especially because obviously, as we know, and I hate to beg the obvious or state the obvious, that it was a, a, you know, a real gun. It was a gun that could shoot because it did. Hindsight is always twenty twenty in a case like this. Always. And, you know, now that you have stories emerging by the armor, you know, interestingly enough, the armor is 24 years old. I believe this is like her second film that she had uh, as chief armor. I think she has like a family background in armory. So, you know, there's some speculation that maybe she only got the position because, you know, her father was an armor or in the industry. Right. Right. And so the, the you know, the interesting thing is that uh, as many folks have learned over the last few weeks, that there are different kinds of rounds that'll be on set. You have dummies, you have blanks, and then you have, of course, the potential for live ammunition, live lethal ammunition. And it's interesting because blanks and dummies are like the yin and yang of each other. You know, one, everything, each has something the other doesn't. And the blank has the gunpowder, it's got the noise, it's got the flash, it's yes. got no projectile. A dummy is the exact opposite. It's got the projectile, it looks like a real bullet, with the exception that the rear, the primer should be punched out. So when you look at it, it's got a dimple that should tell you that there's no primer, this can't go off. Now, those are things that are obvious. A blank has a um, has kind of a, a pinched head. Uh, it looks kind of like a Phillips head screwdriver. Whereas a you know real, uh, an armorer would know between these three different kinds of rounds. That's why you have the armor on the set. That's why you have the armor on the set. And in fact, I've even, under, my understanding is that the dummies in, in addition to the punched out back, they have a BB inside so you can shake it and say, oh, this is a this is a dummy round. So I think that actually helps Alec Baldwin because given the level of sophistication you might need in order to differentiate between blanks, dummies, live ammunition, it might not be reasonable to expect an actor to know that, regardless of how many movies they've been in. Right. No, exactly. And, you know, it's it's interesting that a lot of folks I've heard ascribe responsibility to Alec Baldwin because, hey, he's been in a lot of movies. 
I mean, I don't know that, that when he was in a Woody Allen set that he's learning a whole lot about firearm safety or anything like that. So, I mean, now I, it seems like a weird discussion to get into because at the core, he is not an armorer. So are you going to, are you going to uh, give him a demerit for every action movie? And he should be an expert in, you know, nuclear arms as well because he was on a nuclear submarine. So, well, that's, that's what I, it's funny you said, I, I put that in my column. I said, look, I mean, if they build a set and someone decides, Hey, instead of fake nuclear missiles, let's put some real ones. So it looks realistic. You know, would we hold the actor responsible for, for pushing the red button or would we hold a crazy armor who decided to use real missiles? I, I would guess the armor, but I, I still hold on to the possibility that Alec Baldwin uh, may have some responsibility for pointing that gun at a human. But I mean, I think we'd all agree it would be way less than anywhere else in America uh, because a movie set is where responsibilities change in a way they just don't anywhere else sure. in the world, in America, I should say. And I think he has a really easy pass through or he can point the finger at the armorer, who coincidentally, I think just a day or two ago, you know, put forth an alternative theory as to how live ammunition actually came out, you know, came to be in that gun. And just, and just so, the, so, the, so the listeners understand, I think a few days ago, the, um, the armor, the attorney, I should say, for the armorers put forth a theory that perhaps this was an act of sabotage by one or more of a disgruntled, uh, I think there was some union, there was some labor discord on the, on the set. And a lot of workers had had walked off the job and suggested that perhaps one of these workers put live ammunition in the gun as a way of sabotaging the set. Uh, that would be uh, a dramatic and uh, really homicidal way to, to sabotage a set, putting live ammunition, in, especially because there had already been discharges reportedly on the set. So I don't know that if they'd already tolerated an accidental discharge reportedly, at least that's mm -hmm. what we're hearing then I imagine another one wouldn't have made a difference unless they intended that somebody would point it actually at somebody. But even then, you know, like you pointed out, Alec Baldwin, I don't think normally would be pointing even a cold gun at someone. The protocol, at least on sets, as I understand it, is you get somebody ready for their shot, you give them the, the blank or the dummies or whatever, and then everybody retreats to the video village safely away from even what is a cold gun. So did they cut corners here? Maybe. But I, I got to tell you, the sabotage theory to me is some really ambitious defense lawyering. Not entirely sure it might it might come back to uh, rebound on the uh, their client. But maybe look, maybe they they have it figured out in a way we don't like. Like we talked about earlier, they may be seating a jury here uh, right. and getting some thoughts into their head, planting reasonable doubt months and months in advance of. But it still, but it still doesn't relieve her responsibility because if she, right. she's doing her job the way she's supposed to be doing it, even if it, someone sabotaged the set and put in live ammunition into this into this gun, if she's doing her job, she would have discovered it and had never handed it over to the assistant director. Uh, absolutely, and I think that's why this is a problematic. Some of the statements that her attorneys have, have put out there are problematic. Let's start with yours, which I totally agree with because. You have a situation where if she's doing her job, if somebody puts live ammunition into a firearm, she should be checking that. So too should be the first assistant director who pops out the cylinder, gives it a spin, goes through each one. He should have seen that too. So even that theory doesn't work because number one, it should have been caught. It's just a fluke, it seems, that it wasn't good. It required additional negligence 
to not get caught. And then even if it is true, she should have been the backstop for that. She's the buck stops with her, uh, arguably, in terms of responsibility for checking the firearms. That plus, I mean, she made another, her lawyers issued another statement. It was essentially denying that there were ever live lethal rounds on set, but obviously there were. So when there are, those are your responsibility as the armor, presumably. So I think she's had some a bit of a misstep when it comes to giving statements. But you know, look, like you said, maybe it'll it'll end up benefiting her in any criminal case. You also got me wondering now whether since she hands off the gun to the assistant director, who then in turn hands it off to Alec Baldwin, I'm wondering if perhaps she can claim that the assistant director's negligence is somehow a superseding cause and almost interrupts the causal nexus between her own negligence and what ultimately happened. You know, almost like a last clear chance. It's like, all right, I made a mistake, but you know what? The assistant director's mistake, their negligence is what allowed my mistake to keep going. Yeah, this, this is very much your province, so I defer to you on this. But my thoughts are this. I can't think of an analogy, I'm sure you can, where you have overlapping responsibilities. So, for example, uh, if the first assistant, uh, the assistant director's responsibility for overall safety overlaps with the firearms, the armorer's, responsibility for the firearms, uh, it seems to me it could be both equally, I mean, or close to equally, uh, or I guess in a joint and several concept, I, I can't really, right. So they have, so I think in a sense, you know, saying, trying to foist off this responsibility when she's the one who's paid uh, to, to take care of this, this issue. The other thing I thought was really problematic, and I want to get your take on this, one of the uh, statements she gave was that, look, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, because of shortfalls in budget or whatever the case may be, I was made to do, I'm one person made to do the job of two people. And because of that, I couldn't devote a- enough time to my armor a job. I don't know about you, Jonathan, you are a much more experienced civil litigator than I am. But did that just sound like a major admission that I wasn't doing my job? Because that's all I heard. I heard I wasn't doing my job. You're admitting because I didn't have the resource, like I'm negligent because I didn't have the resources to do what I, you know, should have been doing full time. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm stretched thin and I'm running around to doing other people's jobs. And that's why I didn't do what I was supposed to do. That's not really, that's not really a defense. Right. The only thing I heard in that entire statement was, you know, in your example was I'm negligent. And then the because yeah, didn't doesn't really matter. matter to me and it won't matter to a civil attorney either. Nobody really cares why you were negligent. All that matters is that you were. Either you were or you weren't. It doesn't really matter why, unless it's, you know, a legally recognized defense. And being, right. you know, not having an, having an insufficient budget, I don't think is recogni- as recognized as a legal defense for anything. If anything, that just, perhaps that might shift any, some responsibility or they're going to point the finger at the production company. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that because, you know, Alec Baldwin, putting aside whether he bears any personal responsibility or liability for what happened. He's also one of the producers of this, uh, of this film. You know, I think there were five other producers as well. And some of the stuff that I've read, basically, you know, they're almost akin to a general contractor. The buck stops with them. They are, the production company is ultimately responsible for the overall safety of a set. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because you hear in Hollywood that producers run the gamut from person with a lot of money who just writes a check to person who's very hands-on and involved in the entire process. 
And I think ultimately, if there's ever any liability of any kind, criminal or civil, much more likely civil, I mean, let's just say almost certainly civil, uh, then if Alec Baldwin is responsible in any way, it won't be as an actor. I think it will be more likely uh, as a supervisor. Uh, even if, you know, I mean, do we know the, I, I don't know the degree to which he supervised yet, but he was an actor and a producer. So I have to assume that he wasn't just writing checks and just acting. He probably was, you know, pretty hands-on, I'm guessing. But I think we'll find that out as time goes on. Well, how does that, see, and I don't know the answer to this. How does it work for a produc- production company and whether it's vicariously liable for the acts and omissions, so to speak, of an armorer or an assistant director? And and when I use that term, just so the listeners understand, you know, that's almost like an employee-employer relationship. You know, the, an employer is, for the most part, responsible for the acts of its employees, you know, provided they're, you know, working, you know, whatever they're doing is in the scope of their employment. And are armorers and assistant directors, are they employees of the production company? Are they just independent contractors? If, which, if that's the case, then the production company can say, well, I'm not responsible for what they do. They're professionals. I'm relying on them to do their job correctly. That's a good point. I mean, I guess, uh, first, I think oftentimes they are employees of the production company, although I don't know if that was the situation here. But if they are, obviously, I think it's it's an easier case to make. But even if they're independent contractors, you're right. I mean, they have the, the, the production company has the right to say, hey, look, that's why we hire an armor. We're not armors. We don't know about guns. We hire the people who know about guns. But if they dictate the terms and conditions, for example, as Hannah Gutierrez-Reed has suggested that uh, they forced her, at least as she puts it, to do the job of two people, two different people, when she's one person. You know, I think once the production company is that involved, you might you might blur the lines and and create a hook there. No, I, I agree with you. And probably the, you know the last the last I think topic I was hoping to touch on. And regardless of how this plays out and who uh, is ultimately deemed uh, legally responsible for what happened to Miss Hutchins. You know, what type of recovery can her husband and her son expect in a case like this? Well, I think we talked about that briefly. And again, this is very much more your area of expertise. But I mean, any any film set, any production com- company like this presumably is going to have a, a primary policy, an excess insurance policy. And that'll be at least a starting point. Uh, beyond that, if you go beyond the excess, which I think is possible in a case like this, um, which is really interesting because I'm sure you've been involved in wrongful death type cases where they weren't as newsworthy. And it's that newsworthiness, I think, that that boosts up the uh, the value of a case. I, I'm sure you've seen cases, you know, go for well within, let's say the let's say the excess here is five million. I'm sure you've seen wrongful deaths that that don't reach that point for whatever reason. So I always feel like cases are like three legged stools, and this is always an analogy that I give, you know, and I always, oftentimes cases are always missing one of the legs. Always. I know what you're going to say. Yes, always. Yeah. I totally agree. There, you know, you have a, the legs of liability, you know, pain and suffering or, or insurance coverage. And one of the legs, one of the legs, I, I want to say that I'm actually mis- messing up one of the legs. I think it's, it's different than that. No, it's, it's liability, it's damages and yeah, it's damages. ability and, to pay. Correct. So in, in this case, there's no question that there's liability on someone. You know, and it's going to play out in the courts, you know, who is ultimately responsible. And you also, you certainly have damages. I mean, it's 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 tragic enough, you know, a woman in her 40s you know, was gunned down on 
on a film set, but she didn't die immediately, you know, after being shot. My, you know, right. from what I read, you know, she was, right. she was, she had conscious pain and suffering. She was aware of what was going on. Um, yeah. She, she survived by, uh, by a husband, you know, by a nine-year-old son. So there's a loss of parental guidance for that child going forward. There's her own economic damages going forward. And she was a very uh, up-and-coming, I mean, up-and-coming cinematographer. Sure. And sure. In Holly, to make it in Hollywood, I mean, the sky is the limit for someone with her, with her talent and connections. Oh yeah, yeah. And so you have, you may have all three legs of the yeah. stool here, which is so rare. I mean, how often does a, a potential client come in or a client come in, and there's always one leg that's a battle, right? I mean, you've got oh, horrific damages, you've got you know all kinds of liability, and then usually I find it's there's no one, you know, it's a it's an uninsured no or the person that you do have a minimum minimum insurance policy or you have the uh, the example of the you know the the ups truck you know crashes t-bones the uh the client's car and they have no damages they're okay they're right. fine you know i mean and, 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 and you know look that's it's, a good great, thing. it's great for the it's great for the client look you don't you don't wish harm right, right but it's certainly a true as a truism in this industry that one of the three legs is almost always missing but in this case i would agree it doesn't appear to be missing in this case right right well, Danny, I really want to thank you for coming on The Blame Game this afternoon. It was, the pleasure really was all mine. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. I'm really honored that you asked me. I really appreciate it. I think this is a, this is a fascinating case study, and I'm really interested to see how it, uh, how it plays out in the weeks and months ahead. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Blame Game. This episode was brought to you by Kramer, Dunleavy, and Ratchik, PLLC. Come check us out at kdrpilawyers.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you, and have a great day.